Somebody asked me, is this light bulb thing a sign? And it is. It is a sign that the bulb has been ordered, but it's not here yet. If there are any other signs you want me to interpret, you just let me know. I appreciate the encouraging remarks about this morning's sermon. It was, in some respects, unusual. But it gave valuable emphasis to what we do when we sing. We nourish our spiritual minds and lives, and we express our reverence to God and our love for Christ who died for us. I hope what we did this morning helps us along the way in those matters. Tonight, I should like to take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And there is one statement in this passage I will highlight, but to do that effectively, context must be consulted. So, I want to start by asking us to listen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. That will be context, and then I'll introduce the passage we're going to focus on. Paul said, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The apostles and their co-workers and Christians in the first century proclaiming the gospel of Christ suffered day by day with persecution. How did they do that? What did they know about the eventual outcome of the daily activity of their faith that was accompanied by suffering? Paul said here in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians verse 1, we know. He said, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul said, we know. Now, we call that hope. We do what God expects us to do here, though there are challenges about it, knowing that there is a there, eternal in the heavens. 
a place awaiting for God's people, another existence far beyond what we can imagine. And this was motive for those people who proclaimed the gospel against great opposition. This was hope. This was what kept those people going, living as faithful disciples in a time when there was open and sometimes violent opposition to Christians and their message. They knew something. This physical body may be destroyed, but God has something better for his people. And we go to funerals for Christians knowing that there is this hope, this great transition from the earthly to the heavenly God has promised to his people. In this tent or body, Paul said, in this earthly existence, we groan. There is pain, disappointment on a number of levels. Yet we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. I heard it said this way one time, burdens here, but blessings there. And we know that. Fully clothed in glory someday, God has said. We believe that, and our faithfulness today anticipates that. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. When we read what God has said, that the Spirit has revealed and guaranteed to us, there is assurance and confidence and hope in that message and those promises. Burdens here, but blessings there, and we know that. So... Continuing at verse 6, it says, we are always of good courage. Now that courage is upheld and prompted by the promises, the hope, the blessings God has given us now that anticipate what will be eternal in the heavens. And this is the passage where it says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Like we studied this morning, we saw the not but we believe. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I hope this is true of me and the rest of us, the rest of our lives. Our aim is to please Him. We have burdens now, but we please Him, knowing there will be great eternal blessings in that dwelling place. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Yes, there is that heavenly dwelling But that is accompanied by, it is accessed through our appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. At that divine place, everything will be considered, whether good or evil, and the only ones who stand will be those who live by faith in Christ now. Well, we could go home, but you know what I'm going to say. There's something else here I want to bring to our attention. There's one statement, but we cannot just look at that one statement. We have to look at it in its setting. So let me approach it this way. If this is all true that we've studied from verse 1 to 10, 
if there is that heavenly dwelling place God has prepared for his people, if we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what should we seek to do in addition to our response to the gospel and our discipleship? Look with me at the next statement. This is the first phrase in verse 11, where it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, here's that statement, we persuade others. I want to focus on that, and I'll get to what else is in the statement. We persuade men, or we persuade others, it says in other translations. In this context, in the work and life of the apostles and those early Christians, this word persuade means the wise use of words and influence to bring people to the truth of the gospel. The wise use of words and influence to bring people to the truth of the gospel. So that involves instruction from God given with clarity, accompanied by proper demeanor, but with boldness that conveys urgency. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat. This is what the apostles did. They were inspired or filled with the Holy Spirit to give instruction that came from heaven, introducing to sinners their hope, their only hope, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, believed and obeyed in life. Paul and his co-workers did this work of persuading people. Men like Barnabas and Silas and Timothy and Titus they gave instruction from heaven, and they did that with the greatest clarity, with proper demeanor, but with such boldness, the urgency of the message was plain. And that's all captured in this word, persuade. This good work they did is captured by three words in verse 11. We persuade others. In some of the translations that you have, it will say, we persuade men. This good work must continue today. God's people today should support and participate in the persuasion of men. In the New Testament, we have the same message the apostles delivered. We ought to see to it that we participate in the proclamation of this message to others. And that means what that word persuade includes. We give instruction with clarity and boldness accompanied by the good influence of godly demeanor. It should be said of each one of us today, we persuade others to the best of our ability. Now this certainly involves the support of those men who use their time in the preaching of the gospel. But beyond that, our lives should be lived in such a way the truth of the gospel can be seen in us. Then when we speak it, it has more credibility to the listener. Most of us have regular contact with people who've not obeyed the gospel. There are people we can talk to about the gospel 
people we know. There are people we can invite to hear gospel preaching. There are people who might be willing to come into your home and have a Bible study. It should be said of every one of us that we persuade others. Now, why do we do that? Well, one answer is we persuade others knowing the terror of the Lord. Knowing the terror of the Lord. The fear of the Lord in the ESV. I want to talk to you about that a minute. In the New American Standard, the New International Version, the fear of the Lord or the terror of the Lord in the New King James. Now, we need to talk about that word terror. The word terror in our society, especially since 9-11, causes us to think of one thing. The destructive acts of evil men. The terror of the Lord is totally dissimilar to that. Totally dissimilar to that. When the word terror is applied to the Lord in some of our English translations, it's not anything like the evil acts of men. There is not the remotest connection between terror on the part of evil men, as we see it in society, with anything divine. But we can use just as well this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Now, in this context, in 2 Corinthians 5, the fear of the Lord relates directly to our sober consciousness of our personal accountability to the Lord. That's the context of the phrase here. I realize the expression godly fear or the fear of the Lord has a general definition focusing on our attitude of reverence toward God in general and our dread of ever displeasing Him. One commentator put it well, the holy fear which mingles with our trust and love for God. But I think in this context, we're looking at something specific in that phrase, the fear of the Lord. It relates directly to our sober consciousness of our personal, individual accountability to the Lord. And I say that because of verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, listen to this, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So here's where we are in the study, if I may state the matter in the simplest terms. If I know I will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and you will also appear before him, then connect that with the imperative. We persuade others. We persuade others. And you will notice this in verse 10. Each one. I'm going to stand before the Lord individually, and you will stand before him individually. And those that we want to persuade will stand before him individually. It is an individual interview that is all about being final. An individual interview that is all about being final. So if we believe that, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, 
that we're going to stand before him individually, we persuade men. In this country, there is a sense of being threatened. We are troubled by war. And for some of the young parents, there is a sober concern about what their children might face. We do not feel secure. We are learning to live with the war on terror and the worry of domestic danger and public health risk and safety. And we may be deeply bothered by the nagging thought that there's nothing we can do in some situations to change everything. But you can change your life. You can make sure of your relationship with the Lord. You can prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you can persuade your neighbors one by one. What do we do? We persuade others. Why do we do it? Knowing the terror of the Lord. We need to see that connection in the context. But then Paul addresses another matter in the form of a denial. He says, what we do not do is commend ourselves. One of the modern translations says, congratulate yourselves. Let me read 11 through 13 to get more context before us. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This is where you begin to get the sense in 2 Corinthians that Paul and his co-workers who were delivering the gospel were under some attack, under unjust criticism. And Paul is beginning to transition into that. But as he does, he talks about what we know. We know the fear of the Lord. We know there is an instructed response God would have us engage in. And we know that we must persuade others. But as we do all that, there's no reason for us to boast about ourselves. Look at what I've done. If we're doing what we ought to do, God certainly knows that. People with a good conscience know it. So there's no need for us to commend ourselves. People without a good conscience will not accept our verbal vindications. People without a good conscience apparently attack the Apostle Paul. But God knows and we know that we are persuading others to the best of our ability because we know the terror of the Lord that we will be before the judgment seat of Christ and others will be there too. Others that perhaps we can communicate to now. And then, the love of Christ constrains us. There is almost a grammatical question that may come up about this, that may be debated back and forth. Is this about the love Christ has for us, 
Or is this about the love we have for Him? If you were to state that in literary or academic terms, uh, do we interpret the grammar of this as the subjective genitive, Christ's love for us, or the objective genitive, our love for Him? You know what occurs to me? It is both. His love for us constrains us in our response of love to Him and to persuade others of what this is all about. Now, the effect specified here is captured in that word constraint or constrain. That means to hold, to keep. You know, this implies Paul and his co-workers needed to be held, kept, and constrained by the love of Christ for them and their response of love to Him. And by practical extension, the same is true of us. We have sinned, though forgiven, we are tempted, thus we need to be held and kept and constrained. Christ's love for us and our love for Him can have that good effect. It constrains us. Everything about Christ is proof of His love for us. His advent, His teaching, His life, His death. Everything about Him is proof of His love for us and behind that the grace of God. When I respond to that love, when I trust in Him and love Him through the obedience of my life, that love keeps me from sin. It holds me in line. It gives me the highest kind of security. And I want others to know about that. His love is sympathetic and thoughtful and patient and helpful and everlasting. I want others to know about that. He is faithful to all His promises. I want to persuade others about that. His instruction is a standard that we can apply in life and depend upon in death. I want others to know about that. The Savior's love is not something merely to be admired or enjoyed or the grammar of it studied. His love constrains us and our love for Him constrains us to do what is right ourselves and persuade others. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And Paul said, I hope it is known also to your conscience. Well, going into this next week, what can we do about all this? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. If we are persuaded about the truth of the gospel and the value of preaching the Word of God, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, that we're standing before God and others will as well, let's be engaged in persuading others. At a very simple level and a first step, invite people to the meeting. Bring them to the meeting. Make sure everybody knows what we're going to be doing here this Weekend. Brother Dawson and his wife will be on their way, 
And we want to be ready. And our readiness involves what Paul wrote here. We persuade others. Let's be standing as we sing. Come.